Welcome to the Falk Salem Podcast. Each month we'll bring you a mix of operational announcements and clinical pieces to keep you up to speed. Through our monthly podcasts, our goal is to put the tools and education right in the palm of your hand. By keeping you up to date, we hope that we can empower you to continue bringing exceptional medical care to the city of Salem and beyond. Any and all material we release has been edited to comply with HIPAA standards. The following is the outline for the September 2020 podcast. Thanks for joining us. We'll start with some general announcements, followed by some notes from the QAQI committee. We have an employee spotlight here celebrating our very own Greta and her history in EMS. We will then cover our spotlight protocol, which is a review of lung sounds and a look at constrictive versus congestive pathologies in the lungs and their various treatments. Finally, we will have the review of the FAQ from this month's Zoom lectures, which was on hidden traumas and killer bleeds, focusing on chest, abdominal, and pelvic trauma. The following are the announcements for September 2020. We have a few employee achievements that we'd like to point out. Andrew, Sonia, and Dan have all cleared their individual FTEP assignments and are now working in the field. Nice job, you three. We also want to give a huge congratulations to Charles and Tiff for graduating paramedic school, passing their certification exams with National Registry, and also completing their FTEP processes to become fully qualified and cleared paramedics now serving the public of Salem. This is a huge accomplishment. More EMTs are in the pipeline working their way towards this very same goal, and we look forward to celebrating their successes as well as they push onwards and upwards. We want to extend a warm welcome to Tessa, our newest hired EMT who will be starting her career here at Falk as a TLP at Salem Hospital. Make sure to say hi and get to know her and make her feel at home and welcome. The 2020 Employee Engagement Survey is coming out soon. This is a huge part of being an employee at Falk. No matter how long you've been with us, we need to hear your feedback and to know what you like and what you don't how we can better ourselves, and how we accomplish our mission here in Salem. This survey is conducted through a third-party survey company. The survey will ask for your employee ID. This can be found on your pay stub. This ID will not follow your survey, and your survey will be anonymous. It is instead used to ensure that each employee has filled out a survey and to prevent multiple surveys from being submitted by the same person. All survey results are anonymous and conglomerated by the third-party company. We ask that you put a lot of thought into each and every question. Add your comments and add your feedback. If you like things here, we want to know about it. And if you see ways that we can change and improve, we really want to know about it. This is how we can affect change, how to better our aim for the years to come. Look for this survey to arrive in the next few weeks and uh, encourage each and every one of us to fill it out. This is our voice. This is our chance to get all that information to directors of FALC and beyond. It's really important. A note about National Registry EMT recertification for this upcoming year of 2021. And our EMT has waived all in-person class Uh, hourly requirements and instead will allow all hourly requirements for 2021 recertification processes to be done with CAPSI accredited distance learning courses to account for COVID. What does this mean in layman's terms? This means that 
for your hours and the needs that you might have for 2021, if you are reserting then, you can do CAPSI accredited online classes like what we have through Target Solutions. You can use your card courses like PALS, PEP, ACLS, PHTLS, your CPR card in order to earn those hours that you might need. And you do not need to add the in-person hours and you're not going to be regulated by the number of online classes that you potentially would need for recertification for 2021. Now, everything still stands for 2022. Uh, You will still be regulated with the number of online credits versus the number of in-person credits that you qualify for. So this really only applies for those recertifying in 2021. Any questions about that, come and see Matt or Cole and we can talk about it. Uh, Another announcement here, uh, polos are allowed to be worn here until the end of September. T-shirts, however, are no longer allowed to be worn on calls, but the polos can be worn instead of the Class B shirts here through the end of September. After September, it'll be back to Class B uniforms for the rest of the winter. This does, however, also include the quarter zip uh, um, sweatshirts if uh, you have one of those. Greetings team, it's Bill. I wanted to hop on the podcast and share a couple of brief operational updates. Hopefully get some information out to you guys and also I've got some kudos I wanna share. So first things first, I wanna talk about the contract renewal. Our discussions with the City of Salem Fire Department continue. Everybody is talking about all the right things. We're giving a little, we're getting a little. So far it's exactly what a negotiation is supposed to be. From a timeline perspective, we're tracking exactly where we need to be and we believe that the results are gonna end up being exactly what we're looking for. So I don't have news to share with you yet, but as soon as I do, we'll get something out. But again, our contract discussions continue and we're making good progress. We're in fact gonna be meeting again this afternoon. So I wanted to talk about two, uh, an exciting initiative we were able to put together really at the last minute over the weekend, uh, which is disaster relief for Marion County. The evacuees that have gone to the state fairgrounds, FALC is able to provide uh, first aid for them as one of the resources there on site. Uh, Dustin, as well as one of our brand new EMTs, Tess, uh, volunteered to go ahead and take this on. We're providing seven day a week, 12 hour day coverage over at the state fairgrounds uh, for the evacuees to provide first aid uh, and just kind of generally help out. Uh, It's been pretty busy. And so they called us back and said, hey, can you staff it 24 seven? We're gonna be challenged to provide that level of staffing without doing overtime. So I do have overtime opportunities available for you guys if you'd like to pick them up. If we don't get the night shifts covered, we'll be shifting ambulance coverage uh, with the city's permission uh, to go ahead and just provide like a standby. But we would like to have designated coverage. Medics can pick it up as well. And uh, just get a hold of Bailey if you're interested in that. Again, the shifts that we have open are 20 to 08, seven days a week. So if you have questions about that, please let us know. I wanted to give you a quick update on August. We finished August cash positive. That's always good. Transports were a little bit above where we forecast, but they were a little bit below last year. So that means we're still not at pre-COVID levels. We were down against the previous month, which means we're trending a little bit negatively. Uh, But generally, September is one of our slowest months. And so far, it hasn't felt like a slow month and it isn't looking like a slow month. So that is also good for our cash and it's also good for the business, but I know everybody's really tired. Uh, Between school starting online, a global pandemic we've been dealing with for months, catastrophic forest fires, and well, whatever else you got going on with your life, we're all carrying a heavy burden right now. So make sure that you're taking some time to be kind to yourself and to each other, if you can. The last thing I wanted to pass on guys was just a very strong kudos 
to Dustin and Cole for putting together the podcast, the work they've done to support Matt and education and the work that the other FTOs have done. I'm just tremendously proud of that team, but especially Cole and Dustin for putting these together. Great job, you guys. Really appreciate it. Hope everybody finds this informative and helpful. Please contact me if you have questions about anything I talked about today. I really appreciate your time and thanks for listening. The QAQI notes for September 2020. Um, wanted to have a quick discussion here about morbidity and mortality. So much of emergency medical services and education is driven towards life-saving measures, stopping the bleed, identifying the life threat, uh, breathe for the patient, you know, take over cardiac compressions like if they're in cardiac arrest, identify the dysrhythmia and perhaps make an intervention to change it, you know, and then eventually culminating into rapid transport to definitive medical care, you know, all about that let's save a life. You know, these are the major tenets of medicine in general, you know, making that impact. You know, the goal is to preserve life, to care for the sick and injured and advise them, counsel them, encourage them, and to bring those skills to them in a timely manner as to preserve life and limb and functionality as much as, you know, as humanly possible. You know, but in between all of that, though, exists another goal. It's to reduce suffrage. That's the morbidity of everything versus the mortality of everything. And this is kind of a a reminder about the difference between mortality and morbidity. In EMS, we also strive to work against this human suffering. The saying, do no harm, I feel embodies this. Paramedics and EMTs on a daily basis, you know, pay witness to human suffrage in so many different ways. Uh, We kind of become accustomed to it. And this goes way beyond, you know, just a discussion about pain control. This is how we hold a hand to help reduce a patient's fright. It's how we comfort family members. You know, it's how we lock doors and check the lights when a patient might be, you know, worried about leaving their home in the middle of the night. It's how we empathize with suffering and seek to reduce it, if only in just a small way that makes medicine so special. So take some time today and think about how you personally you know, connect with a patient and help to identify with their suffrage. It's one of those things that you know, when our partners do it, when we do it, those are the things that almost make the most difference. You know, for some folks, they use humor. For some folks, you know, it's a kind gesture or a smile or perhaps just using what you know to be a strong patient advocate and help to counsel them about, you know, the suspicion that you have with their medical malady. You know, not every call is about saving a life, but every call is about reducing a patient's suffering in some small way. And they're the things that we're doing every single day with our patients, and they are so important. In EMS, we work alongside some of the most kind and generous people in the world. Talk about this with your partner. Help to mentor each other in this uh, area. Help to support each other. It's truly some of the most important medicine that you can bring into someone else's life every single shift. A quick reminder here about patient history, allergies, and meds. Um, The auto-import function, that repeat patient function within ESO, this is a great, great tool, being able to automatically import a patient's medical history based on previous contacts or transports. It really saves us keystrokes and imports all of those things directly into the patient's chart. But this list of medication history, allergies, and meds, it needs to be double-checked and pruned and edited to reflect the patient's most current prescriptions and medications. 
If you can't check with the patient because of you know, a language barrier or perhaps a mental status change, spend some time at the ER you know, with the ER staff and see if you can take a look at the meds and allergies and history that's listed in their EPIC chart. You know, These are conglomerate of not only things from their PCP, but previous ER visits, um, other times that they've been to the hospital, and in a lot of cases can be a lot more accurate even than our own patient import information. Last is a quick discussion here about index of suspicion. You know, it should go without saying that every time we are with a patient that each of us is applying our own line of thinking and judgments to what we think might be going wrong with this patient. When we add that to our protocols and how we are supposed to respond when working with patients exhibiting these various signs, this helps us to gauge and adjust our level of suspicion, our idea of what is going on with this patient and just how much of a risk uh, that is to the patient's life and limb and functionality. You know, this helps us to determine how much formal medicine we need to apply to any given situation. However, this is also one of the most blunted skills that over time in EMS gets eroded with these gray area type of calls. Things that they don't necessarily go bad, they don't necessarily go well, things are just a little confusing and therefore we kind of start to blunt our sharpness of what we initially had when we came out of uh, uh, school. So for example, we train and train and train on watching out for sudden cardiac arrest because it happens. It's documented that it happens in the field, but it happens infrequently. Undoubtedly, when it does happen, we're quick to jump into action and to try to make an intervention. But after years of running chest pain calls, uh, years of seeing patients who are borderline unstable, but never seeing this occur in the field, our index of suspicion becomes blunted, dull, slower to react. However, the occurrence of sudden cardiac arrest, it still remains a constant threat despite all of our individual experiences that are there. It's things like this that become pitfalls for medics over the course of their careers. You know, we really need to remain vigilant and keep that high level of index of suspicion. Does this mean that for every stubbed toe patient, you know, we have to do a trauma activation? No but we should be digging in deeper with our lines of questions. It should encourage you to use your clinical rule outs and supporting exams to show that we ruled out the possibility of needing to activate that trauma service at the hospital. This may be a poor example. Um, maybe a better one would be you know, looking at this month's lecture, you know, the Zoom lectures that we did um, that were presented by Dustin discussing killer bleeds and hidden traumas. You know, we discussed them at length about injuries that have hidden bleeds, like internal injuries to our organs, you know, that perhaps have slow bleeds that are still absolutely positively life threats to our patient, yet they don't crop up immediately. And not a drop of blood needs to touch the ground, and yet these patients can still end up being hypovolemic, needing blood needing access to an immediate surgeon. You know, it's through our exams, through our direct visualization, trending our vitals over a period of time, looking at the mechanism of injury and getting a really high index of suspicion, that gut feeling that says, you know what, we really need to make sure that you don't have internal injuries here. You know, getting, you know, to the trauma system and trauma service activations even faster. Getting that patient to the ER in front of a surgeon, in front of imaging, you know, being prepared with multiple IVs and multiple sets of vital signs. And, you know, if that patient does happen to decompensate, we're right there and ready to go. And that's all based upon really good exams, direct visualization, and just maintaining that high index of suspicion. Talk to medics who've been working in field for a long time. 
you're going to notice that they're going to tell you why they suddenly have such high levels of suspicion. They're going to be able to give you anecdotal stories, and they're going to be able to you know, teach you and try to coach you in ways uh, to raise your own level of suspicion, especially if it's in an arena that you've never actually seen before and have only trained you know, to be prepared for. You know, a lot of medics out there in the field, especially after they've spent enough time there, they've witnessed a patient decompensate, and they never want to be unprepared for that ever again. You know, just because you haven't seen it yet doesn't mean that it's not possible. So be vigilant, my friends, and always err on the side of caution. Be suspicious and therefore be ready for any emergency to occur. For this month's employee spotlight piece, we're interviewing our very own Greta, who's been in the field now since October of 2019. So thank you, Greta, for taking the time to come in and do this. I uh, had a question about uh, how long have you been doing jobs in and around emergency medical services? Um, I have been working as a paramedic for 24, 25 years. Oh, yeah. What got you started in EMS? Well, when I went to college, I always have liked medicine. Um, first aid was always interesting to me. I did well in it. Actually, when I was a kid, I probably about seven or eight, I was in the hospital because I had my appendix taken out. And that was the coolest thing. It was, <laughs> it was fun. I don't know why. I don't know what I thought about it, but it was fun. And so I've always liked medicine. And when I got into college, I, was, I had thought about nursing, but I, it, just, it, just didn't seem, it just didn't seem like something I'd want to do. And, and I got talking to a friend. She was taking an EMT course. And I also knew of some EMTs at home because we had a QRU, um, but and they went. What's to a QRU? A QRU is it's just a quick response unit. Okay, you know? like through the fire department. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and you know I had seen them at church and stuff like that. I never really paid attention to what they were until I got talking to this coworker, and I was like, and it just that sounds awesome, and so I signed up for the EMT class and. And I was just kind of like, you know, I'll apply for paramedic, the paramedic program. If I get in, I get in. If I don't, I'll do something else. And, you know, I got accepted and, you know, it's just... I see. Yeah. Okay. What's kept you doing EMS for, for this long? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's fun. Yeah. But is there anything um, about it that... Well, part of it is because I've been the primary breadwinner for my family. And so I've had to work, but, oh, God. I, I don't know, there'd be some days when I'd be like, okay, I'm done. I'm so done, you know? And then you go on that call and you're like, that was cool. That was really cool. And then you kind of rem remember why you're, you're doing it. And, and I, I, I've actually had those off and on throughout my career, you know? It really makes it worth it sometimes. Yeah, where yeah. I'm like, I'm tired, I'm burned out, um, it yeah. sucks. <laughs> Um, and then you just go on something and you're like, okay. I really like doing this. You yeah. Know, you, you make that impact or yeah. you connect with that patient and yeah. it rewards you in a way you weren't expecting. Yeah. It can double you back down and yeah. you're like, all right, yeah, I do love this job. Yeah. Then you take a couple of minutes away from it and then you realize, you know, I actually really like medicine. I'd really yeah. like to do it again. It's almost a calling yeah. versus and a job. I, um, well, it, it has become who I am. Um, even though I'm kind of, when I'm not on the job, I kind of want, don't want people to know 
<laughs> and, my, and my husband's the kind of person that would like, oh yeah, my wife's a paramedic. I'm like, you know, you know, like signs we, you up for it. <laughs> like when we were at scout camp and with my son and when he was younger, and that was one one of the things my husband said. Oh yeah, my my wife's a paramedic. I'm like. Yeah, this is supposed to be a vacation for me. <laughs> is there a doctor on board? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I, 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 I don't know why. I just can't imagine not. So switching gears, I wanted to highlight something really interesting. As we found out about this as we were doing the blood drive, mm -hmm. um, you know, we had two blood drives here and we collected 44 units of blood total uh, between the two different blood drives. However, with all of this and, you know, releasing a little HIPAA information with you with your permission, <laughs> uh, you've donated blood 41 times with the American Red Cross, and I have a couple of strange statistics about that. So okay. I went ahead, I did a little math with this just to highlight, you know, how much blood that is. So a pint of blood, which is usually what they take, uh, that's 473 milliliters of blood in it. So 41 pints of blood is equal to 19,400 milliliters of blood or 19.5 liter bags of blood that you've donated. That's more than what we carry on an ambulance. So you have multiple ambulances of liter bags of blood that you've donated. But I'm not done there. There are eight pints in a gallon, which means that you've donated over five gallons of blood. That's five jugs of milk that you have that you've donated, <laughs> or one whole deep rock bottle of five, like one giant deep rock bottle. That's five gallons of water. Typically, that's how much blood that you've donated, and those typically weigh about 42 pounds. So the next time you're lifting something that's about 45 pounds or so, that's how much blood that you've donated. And then on average, if we consider there's about one gallon of blood per human being, you've topped off five whole humans with blood <laughs> uh, from empty to full. Like, what do you think about that? Well, uh, I guess that explains why I get dizzy really easily, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but um, I, I, that is kind of mind-boggling. I've never really thought about it like that, you well, know. Think about this. I mean, the Red Cross sometimes breaks apart that blood into three different useful pieces, blood cells, plasma, and platelets. And so your one donation could possibly help three people. So let's say I'm a really savvy donor and I've donated maybe 41 times, let's say, right? Mm -hmm. That means that I've potentially personally helped 123 people doing that. This is you, okay. right? You've possibly helped 123 people. So a Greyhound bus potentially holds 55 people. <laughs> That means that you filled two full Greyhound buses and you're working on your third uh, Greyhound bus to fill of the number of people that potentially have been affected by your platelets, platelets plasma or red blood cells, right? Mm -hmm. um, so this is really humbling to hear about and I saw this. We collected 44 <laughs> units between all the people we could you know, drag in here and, and you know, drain of blood and everything else. But you've been doing this for a long time and what really keeps you coming back you know, to donate blood? Like why is that so important um, to you? It's really not that honorable. You know? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think it's pretty cool that to be able to donate and, you know, blood and help people. I mean, that's, I, I, I'm O positive and I believe that's the universal donor, I think. Um, and so I think that's part of it, knowing that um, my blood will help, you know, anybody mm -hmm. in, in a jiffy, you know, if they, if they need it. I mean, so that, that does help. I mean, I started when I was in college and that was probably why I initially started. Um, 
they've got snacks. I love snacks. <laughs> the, the universal motivator. It's yeah. I've and yeah. And, well, and think, then, think about this. So we're going back to your career here mm-hmm. at, at Falk, and then you know, obviously you have twenty you know plus years in EMS as well. But how many patients do you think that you've contacted while being here at Falk since starting in October of twenty nineteen? How many patients do you think that is? Oh my goodness. Um, I don't know. Well, maybe discounting the last few days and things like that since the time I ran this report, but you have uh, been a part of 843 patient contacts since October of 2019. Oh my gosh, wow. Yeah, you're coming up on that two years now that you've been, and you've helped and been a part of uh, treating over three quarter of a thousand people. Wow. So 843 people. And if you're like me and you're wondering just kind of what that means, that's 15 and a half Greyhound buses of people that <laughs> somehow, some way you've gone, you've talked to, you've given advice to, you've been a part of, you know, all of that has been part of your career here in just the last couple of, of years with us. Mm-hmm. Then you roll in the other 20 years plus that you've been in EMS, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for your peers or something that you want other people to know about in EMS that might help them with their own careers in the future? Oh, goodness. Um... I don't know, that's kind of hard because, I mean, I know that um, you're going to have those calls that are that are challenging um, mentally, emotionally, and ultimately we don't have control over who lives and dies, you know? We just do the best we can and, you know, I know there's, I still go through it like, you know, your shoulda, coulda, wouldas, you know, why didn't I do this or, or I should have checked this better or, mm-hmm. you know. You know, and but also learn from those those things. You know, mm-hmm. you just keep learning. Actually, I did have somebody say that if you feel like you have learned and you know everything about EMS, mm-hmm. it's time for you to get out. Because if you think you've stopped learning, then I totally agree. Y- you should get out because With you're going to be quickly. Everything changes, yeah. and you know, we move from lidocaine's the right drug to amiodarone's the right drug. Yeah. You know, the, shock 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 everybody yeah. shock sort of protocols and now we're doing Rialto and right. things just progress and change you know learning yeah. from those things or learning from those experiences is I guess how we've you know taken this from the 1970s mm-hmm. to where we are even today and you know it takes a, a whole lot of I guess dexterity to be mm-hmm. able to swap yourself out of what was the answer back then right well maybe we've learned from those things yeah. and we're now we're trying something new that turns it on its ear but it's based on new science or it's based on new things so we're trying to do the best for our patients one thing that i find kind of funny because when i first started um, and i was a new paramedic i couldn't understand why my the seasoned paramedics like you know we'd go on you know like cardiac arrest calls and and they do something and i'd be like oh, that's not american heart association approved why, why are you doing that you know and i'm like i i never thought i would be like i'd always be up to date and i'd always do Sure. You know, what's, that's, that's the goal, right? That's protocol, right? And I'm at that point now where I'm like, we don't do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And like, you know, learning that and like, yeah. oh, okay, you, I've got to take that and change it in my mind yeah, because this is a new, it's a new thing. And I mean, being, being flexible like that, I think yeah. is huge. I, I don't think it would have changed this kid's outcome, but we had a, a pediatric code and, you know, I, I intubated and, you know, my intermediate got an IO and I gave Epi and then I grabbed the atropine, just shoved it in there and the intermediate's like, uh, 
Yeah. And I was like... Zatropine for kids. You don't really give it to You them. don't give it to them anymore, no. but you know what you used to. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't take it back. Well, I appreciate you spending the time with us here today and kind of talking about it and just, you know, thinking about, you know, careers in EMS and how we all somehow, some way have all ended up here and, you know, we're all working in the same regard, but everybody's journey through that is so different. Mm -hmm. However, there's one thing that we all kind of commonly come back to, and that's food. Um, so <laughs> have you found any great places to eat around town? And if so, what would you recommend um, for on-duty or off-duty? Either way, I think okay. we all kind of like food. So. so I always like the, I don't eat there a lot, but I always like the Hawaiian, Hawaiian time. I Hawaiian think. time. I don't eat there a lot. Yeah. Um, it's good. But it's when good I first, um, when I was doing like NEOP, pretty much every day I went to that, not your mama's deli, or mm -hmm. deli, is that what it's called? Uh, it's yeah, on Broadway. It's, it's off of Broadway. It's mm -hmm. off of Broadway. And I, I, I like, that was a really good place. Cool. I mean, I don't get to go there on, on I mean, I guess I could if I was posted here, but, to but, that, but that was a good place. I liked it. Great. <laughs> well, thanks again, Greta. I appreciate it. For this month's Spotlight Protocols, I want to do a review of COPD and CHF. Treating patients with respiratory emergencies poses a variety of challenges based on age and medical history of the patient. Two common emergencies that are met by responders are patients exhibiting symptoms of congestive heart failure, CHF, and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD each of which is addressed differently by protocol, and sometimes it's hard to pick out the key differences that allow us to choose the right path to go down on a call. Oftentimes, time is against us, and whether or not we choose to go right or left often depends more on just what the patient looks like or if the patient's history gives us a clue. Lung sounds are by far the most important vital sign that we can get when working with a patient in respiratory distress. In the following module, we'll be reviewing lung sounds, listening to sound bites and that contain different lung sounds and discussing them. Then we will look at each disease process and then finally review our approach to treating these diseases. The flow of air through each of the passageways in the lungs on its way towards the alveoli creates sound. It must pass through the upper airway consisting of the larynx and the trachea. At the carina, it divides into the right and left bronchus, and then again into the smaller passages known as the bronchioles. At this point, we are now entering the portions of the lungs that are considered to be the lower airway passages. These tubes keep decreasing in size until eventually they end in elastic-like sacs that look like a cluster of grapes. These are called the alveoli, and this is where gas exchange actually occurs. Everything else along the path, as we discussed, is considered dead space, or places where we don't actually exchange gas. Think of the air we breathe as a stream of water for a moment. As a stream passes down smooth stream beds and over sandy bottoms, it doesn't make much noise at all. But if we take those same waters and cause them to course over rapids, around sharp corners, or force it through smaller gaps between the rocks, the water churns and becomes turbulent. This turbulence, churning, and bubbling causes sound. Thinking of the ventilation of the lungs in this fashion, gases tumbling and squeezing and impacting the surfaces of your lungs while speeding up in constricted spaces or slowing down in wide open areas during its journey can help you to understand why you might be hearing sounds at various points of auscultation or why you might not hear lung sounds at all. Remember that water or air isn't moving, 
this will not create a sound. As air is forced into narrower passages, like a bronchiole that is inflamed, swollen, or irritated, it causes the air to speed up, to whistle, or squeak, or wheeze. Just like when you whistle with your lips, you can change the pitch by pursing your lips tighter or making them more loose. This sound changes pitch based on the size and constriction of the tube the air is flowing through. This makes the wheezes, squeaks, or whistling sound in the lungs, or even in the larynx, loud, or perhaps even soft, or maybe even diminished. Sometimes the fast-moving air picks up other things along the way, like mucus, or phlegm, or food, or blood, or secretions found within the lungs. This fluid then rattles and sloshes and bubbles and pops along the passageways as well. This rattling or bubbling or churning of the fluid in the tubes causes different sounds described as either ronchi or ronchi, perhaps rawls or crackles. In another light, and though it is implied in our discussion that the presence of breath sounds is super important, it's also my goal to emphasize that it is just as important to listen and find the absence of sound during auscultation. Remember that in order to have breath sounds in the first place, we have to be moving air through the passages and across the fluid and into the lower areas of the lungs. If there is little to no movement of air, either because of constriction, blockage, fluid, positioning, or even the patient's own respiratory efforts, we will have little to no lung sounds. We need air movement. We need air all the way to the alveoli to even have a chance at uh, gas exchange and even to have a chance at cellular perfusion. Therefore, the absence of breath sound in an area of the lung is not readily ruled out by previous medical history and should be assumed to be negatively affecting ventilation and thus negatively affecting perfusion in a patient and should be taken very seriously in your treatment decisions. We will now review some common lung sounds that we run into in the field. Normal lung sounds, bronchial lung sounds, vesicular lung sounds. Sounds classified as normal generally sound like hollow, open, clear air passages. The sounds are deep with an unlabored pattern. The patients draw in the breath and can also exhale slowly and completely. Some people have a difference in their inspiratory and expiratory times, which can be normal. An example of this are vesicular lung sounds, which are characterized with a longer inspiratory time and a shorter exp expiratory time, estimated to be approximately three to one. Notice again, the sound is hollow. This is heard over the main channels of the lungs and is not so much at the bases. Remember that asking the patient to take deep breaths sometimes can overshadow sounds in the lungs. Listen during normal inspiration and exhalation, but if needed, the patient can be coached to take a deep breath to assess the possibility of getting air and sounds to the bases of the lungs as part of your exam. Again, these are examples of normal lung sounds, bronchial lung sounds, or vesicular lung sounds. Next, we'll be discussing wheezes. 
As we mentioned earlier, air passing through narrowing or constriction causes a whistling or a squeaking sound. This sound is generally called wheezes and associated with pathologies that cause restriction in the lungs. Think of asthma as a great base example of this. Bronchitis is the inflammation of bronchioles by definition. If tissue is inflamed, if it's swollen, if it's red and angry, painful and weeping, the swelling happens within the tube. The tube becomes more narrow and constricted. Now we try to force air to enter or escape through these same passageways, and we can hear the air speed up, causing it to whistle, maybe even rattle and squeak as we force it through those air passages. This sound is known as wheezing. Wheezing can happen during inspiration, called inspiratory wheezes, or during exhalation, known as expiratory wheezes. Generally speaking, expiratory wheezes are more likely to occur, as this is when the lungs become more physiologically narrow. Inspiratory wheezes are less likely to occur and are considered a bit more concerning. However, the most concerning to EMS is both inspiratory and expiratory wheezes, as they are occurring during the entire ventilatory phase. It's also very important to note that lung sounds that include a pathology causing restriction can have changes in lung sounds that progressively get worse. If a patient with bronchitis is breathing rapidly, they will inspire air and force it beyond the restricted passages. However, exhalation still needs to occur, but the patient feels air hungry and cuts off their own exhalation phase in order to try and breathe in again. This restriction causes air to become trapped within the deeper lung pockets beyond the constriction. This means that the patient has gained a net volume of air in their lungs and has not fully been able to exhale their previous breath. If this happens more and more, the lungs become hyperinflated and full of air, and their ability to expand any further is severely limited, meaning that the patient cannot take in adequate breaths because they're already full. When we consider breath sounds and how they change, a patient who is breath stacking like this may start with audible wheezes and concerning lung sounds, but as we reassess later on, we might find that the wheezing sounds we heard before have gone away. If we are hearing clear movement of air in the chest and the patient is expressing relief, then that might indicate that we've alleviated the emergency. However, the absence of breath sounds or even diminished breath sounds in a quadrant especially in the lower lobes. This can actually indicate hyperinflation and breath stacking, meaning that the patient needs a longer exhalation phase to get rid of that net gain of air. This loss of breath sounds in a patient that still appears tachypnic and gasping, gulping air, is a critical sign of deterioration. Uh, the next breath sound that we will cover here is ronchi or ronchi. These are low-pitched rumbling or flapping or rattling coarse sounds, like deep snoring in mid-level and bases of the lungs. Ronchi usually happen when you breathe out. They can be a sign that your bronchial tubes, the tubes that connect your trachea to your lungs, are thickening because of mucus. Ronchi sounds can be a sign of bronchitis and COPD.
As you breathe in, mucus and secretions are pulled downward, and as the lung expands, friction on these surfaces decreases. But as you breathe out, the lung size decreases, passages narrow, and secretions are pushed back up. As the passages narrow, friction from the air movement across the surface increases over the mucus attached to the lining of the passages, causing the mucus to flap, bubble, and perhaps even move upward. The movement causes a low rumbling, churning, or snoring sound inside of the lungs as the mucus vibrates, stretches, and flexes. This movement can also cause mucus to stretch and occlude passageways inside of the lungs. These mucus plugs can also cause variable hypoxia, a sudden feeling of anxiety or air hunger in a patient, as areas of the lungs that are now plugged with sticky mucus no longer allow air to enter or escape from the tissue below the occlusion. A patient that feels this, having shorter breaths in, or a feeling of sudden hypoxia or respiratory stress despite breathing harder or moving forcibly, absolutely make the job of caring for them much harder. Remember that until the plug is moved, coughed out, or opened back up, that area of the lung remains stagnant to further air movement, and thus we will have no breath sounds in that area. This means that you can suddenly lose sounds in various areas of a lobe, and regain them again as the mucus plug shifts and moves. Oftentimes a patient will have the urge to cough, grunt, or attempt to move the mucus, and once the mucus does in fact move, the patient will express a sudden improvement in their ability to breathe. In patients who have a mucus plug, look for this to happen after administration of a bronchodilator, which allows the bronchiole to increase in diameter, subsequently allowing air to flow past and into a lung along the way that perhaps has been constricted and shut down for a period of time. This will then push and move the mucus plug upward and outward while they are breathing out. Ronchi can also be found in patients who have wheezing as well. Ronchi can develop after airflow is restored to a lung with administration of medications. It's the movement of mucus. This is actually a pretty good sign. Once we move this stuff out of the way, it will definitely improve lung function overall. The next lung sound we will describe is rawls or rails and crackles. These sounds are usually heard in the bases of the lungs, but can be found in the lungs at higher levels, depending on where the fluid surface level has risen to, or in areas where fluid may be trapped or filled after laying down flat. Describes a sound of crackling, bubbling, and hissing inside of the chest. This is one of the hardest sounds to clearly define, as everyone seems to have a different way of describing it. I had an instructor attempt to describe the sound to me one time in class by having each person in the pinch a section of their own hair near their ear, 
and crunch the hair between their fingers. When you do this, you get a sense of fine, crackling, snapping sounds if you rub the hair back and forth in this sort of a slow manner. However, another instructor simply used a piece of Velcro, separated it out slowly with each exhalation phase that she was making. And this is, at least in my opinion, a better version of what I feel like fine Rawls sounds like deep down inside of somebody's uh, chest. Overall, Rawls are a subtle sound and really hard to pick up in hectic environments, especially during emergency transports with the siren running, lots of uh, additional conversation. If the patient who is audibilizing their pain or anxiety as you're attempting to listen to breath sounds, ending each breath with a moan or a groan or really just grunt their way through their breathing, this can once again be a really hard sound to pick out in that sort of an environment. And they usually come hand in hand with anxiety and this discomfort um, and the patients have a hard time uh, controlling that as you're attempting to listen uh, deeply in their chest. Hearing Rawls in a patient's chest is indicative of fluid being present within the alveolar spaces. Rawls are, are sounds created by the bubbling of this loose, non-viscous fluid inside of the lungs. This fluid is mobile, thin, and as such will move freely with changes in the patient's posture, collecting and spreading out at the lowest levels of the lungs. In essence, think of the bubbling like a carbonated drink. The fluid uh, of the drink is within the passageways of the lungs and the carbonation bubbles in the drink are floating and moving towards the surface. As those bubbles move and escape, they make that soft fizzing, popping, bubbling sound. In pulmonary edema, these bubbles are the gases escaping from those filled alveolar sacs that were once ventilated with air during inspiration or were closed off and are now forcing their contents outward. These bubbles rise from underneath the fluid level, and as the lung shrinks and collapses, it causes these bubbles to float through the fluid towards the surface. This is that soft sound and hard to pick up at times, but is critical to determining the presence of edema within a patient and helping us to choose the right treatment pathway. When we describe the sound properly, we use terms fine rawls for softer sounds and coarse rawls for louder, more prominent sounds. However, if unsure about which it is, rawls or crackles is appropriate when describing your findings to other providers that you're working with or in your chart documentation. Now let's look at our disease processes and how we treat them in the field. So constrictive pulmonary pathologies, things like asthma, bronchitis, or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD. By definition, asthma is a respiratory condition marked by spasms in the bronchi of the lungs, causing difficulty in breathing. It usually results from an allergic reaction or other forms of hypersensitivity. A diagnosis of asthma is uh, a reactive airway problem that is recurrent with a patient's history. Asthma can be exercise-induced or due to an allergen. Patients who suffer from asthma use a variety of medications, some of which are short-term PRN meter dose inhalers uh, that are designed to reduce the constriction on a short-term or even a long-term basis. 
Albuterol is an example of a common short-term bronchodilator. You'll see that also in a patient's medical history known as Ventolin. The uh, medication Spiriva, however, is a long-term bronchodilator, lasting sometimes up to 24 hours. Spiriva, however, can take weeks of regular use before the patient becomes therapeutic using that medication on a daily basis, and therefore is not a good choice as a rescue medication. Um, it's meant to just help prevent future flare-ups. Bronchitis is an inflammation process of the bronchioles and is associated with mucus production as well as wheezing due to constriction. This can uh, be caused by infections or allergens and the reactions can be acute in nature. You can get sick and have mucus production as in with some seasonal respiratory infections. These can also be chronic in nature where opportunistic infections set in and the patient cannot fully clear those infections back out. Environmental allergens and daily exposures can lead to daily symptoms with recurrent onset of these uh, disease processes. This is chronic bronchitis, in which, uh, which is a form of COPD. Smoking uh, and lung injuries are diseases that interfere with the patient's ability to breathe deeply uh, regularly, such as multiple sclerosis, can make a patient more prone to these types of diseases. Patients who are immunosuppressed or sedentary in their lifestyle also have similar problems with recurrences of these types of diseases. Uh, patients who suffer from asthma can also develop an acute bronchitis on top of their asthma as well. Either way though, if a patient is experiencing a restrictive or a constrictive form of breathing disorder, they're going to present with things like wheezing and ronchi and history that sounds like an infective or an inflammatory response in their lungs. These patients need bronchodilators. These patients start with the use of albuterol and then progress even further towards anti inflammatories and other um, bronchodilators like ipotropium bromide or atrovent. Albuterol is a beta agonist and causes a reaction similar to epinephrine's beta effects that causes the lungs to open up, dilates out the bronchioles, and it prepares you to run for your life and fight for your life. Albuterol activates this sympathetic response within the lungs. Now often we also give ipotropium bromide or atrovent in our NEBs. We refer to these as combivents or duoneb treatments. This means we're giving two medications at once. Atrovent works differently than albuterol, but works towards the same goal, which is relaxation and dilation of the lung passages to allow better ventilation. Atrovent is a parasympatholytic, meaning it works against and inhibits or antagonizes the parasympathetic nervous system. This means that it works directly against acetylcholine. To use an analogy of a car driving down the road, we can slow a car down by either taking our foot off the accelerator or stepping on the brakes. Acetylcholine steps on the brakes of our car and it works directly against the foot pushing on the accelerator, which is adrenaline. We know that epinephrine is our sympathetic response and causes us to breathe faster and more deeply to allow ourselves to fight for our lives and run for our lives. In our analogy of the car, this means that when we step on the gas pedal, we cause the engine to move and the car, the car to move faster down the road. However, if, if we're simultaneously pushing the brake pedal and pushing the gas pedal at the same time, it's much more difficult for that car to speed up. This is where Atrovent comes in. 
Albuterol is stepping on the gas pedal. It's trying to make our car move faster, to move us into that fight or flight response and give us better ventilation overall. It is also trying to dilate the bronchioles. However, albuterol is trying to give us that sympathetic response. In our analogy though, acetylcholine is still pushing on the brake pedal. It works inhibitory to epinephrine and it's attempting to slow our car down. By applying that pressure to the wheels, we won't be able to move that car forward as fast as we possibly could. This is where the parasympathetic response may be inhibited uh, by using a medication. This is exactly where Atrovent comes into play. It goes in and works where it comes in and it tries to reduce parasympathetic response on the body. That's why it's called a parasympatholytic. It works against acetylcholine here, almost cutting our brake lines, reducing the acetylcholine's effect on the system from being able to slow us down. So this allows any muscles that are resisting dilation because of the presence of acetylcholine to further relax. This potentiates the actions of albuterol even further, allowing our patient to breathe with less restriction and allows the albuterol to get in there and really step on the gas pedal and do what needs to be done. Now that we understand a bit about our Duoneb, perhaps we're already seeing the pitfalls that giving that second medication could potentially cause. Atrovent cuts the brake lines. It removes our car's ability to slow itself down. In one stance, this is good, allowing us to breathe easier, maybe allowing for better bronchodilation. However, in a cardiac sense, this also reduces the AV junction's ability to apply vagal tone, which resists and slows cardiac conduction from the atria to the ventricles. This means that the patient that is rate limited based on the heart's ability to resist AV bombardment of signals, such as patients with atrial fibrillation, they can suddenly become tachycardic with doses of Atrovent. Remember that it is okay to try albuterol only at first. Use your best judgment. Your meds can make a great deal of difference, but sometimes they also have side effects that we need to be ready for. While we're talking about bronchitis, let me reiterate that bronchitis is swelling and inflammation of the bronchioles. The tissue irritation and swelling can be reduced with the application of corticosteroids. In patients who have ronchi and wheezing, and we're considering them to be a bronchitis sort of a patient with inflammation happening in the lungs, consider giving them Decadron early on. Though this is not a rescue medication per se, and that it, uh, the onset of this medication takes a long period of time, by the time they arrive at the ER, they've been registered, they've seen the uh, MD and initial labs are being done and initial treatments have been uh, given. The dexamethasone, that decadron that we gave them in the field is now starting to kick in and helps the patient out in the long run by decreasing the swelling in the lungs, allowing them to open back up and to better improve that patient's overall outcome. This may mean a great deal of difference to a patient and the amount of time that they actually spend in the ER and the amount of time that it takes for them to recover. Now let's look at congestive heart failure and pulmonary edema. Congestive heart failure occurs when the heart fails to adequately pump blood in a direction, either pushing blood towards the lungs or pushing blood towards the body. Congestive heart failure is divided into right-sided heart failure and left-sided heart failure. Each of these leads to a different set of symptoms. However, once the patient has been diagnosed with failure of one side of their heart, this will eventually, over the course of time, lead to failure of the other side of the heart. 
To better understand congestive heart failure, I'd like to briefly describe the mechanism that is at work that reduces the heart's ability to pump blood. Congestive heart failure, although leads to a deterioration of the patient, is actually a strengthening of the cardiac muscle. Think of the weightlifter who is attempting to bulk up or build mass in their muscles. Their goal is thicker, more prominent, or more defined muscles, and the ability to move larger amount of weight, more reps, and perhaps to do all of that in a more impressive way. Um, the bodybuilder needs to lift heavier weights and uses more intense workouts, and as such, builds muscle mass and increases the size of the, uh, his muscles as they lift that heavier weight and lift it more times in a row and do more sets. The heart is also a muscle, and if we work the heart out in certain ways, requesting that the heart lift heavier and heavier weights, in the case of the heart, actually pushing that blood against higher and higher intravascular pressures, or perhaps pushing against just more resistance, the heart, just like this bodybuilder, is going through its own workout every single day, pushing against those higher pressures and more resistance. This is in effect just having it lift heavier and heavier weights and that muscle becomes stronger so that it can push against that pressure and overcome it. Now with that muscle getting bigger, unlike the bodybuilder friend who is able to become swole and simply, you know, just buys bigger clothing to fit that new bulk and to, to fit all those new muscles in there, his muscles are able to expand outward uh, towards his skin and outward into the world. The heart is, in, is encased inside of a membrane known as the uh, pericardium. The heart will start getting stronger and thickening its own muscle wall but it's restricted in the amount of size that it can actually grow into. And as such, this removes a lot of that available space inside of its own ventricles as the muscle starts to thicken and grow actually into the ventricular space or into the atrial space. This reduces the amount of effective blood that can actually fill and pump out with every subsequent squeeze of the heart. This reduction in ejection fraction really means that less blood is able to enter that ventricle before being ejected out towards the lungs from the right side or towards the aorta and the rest of the body from the left side. This fluid backup or traffic jam, if you will, um, backs up in the system in a direction from whence it came. If the right side of my heart is failing to eject the amount of blood that's in its ventricles or just is filling as fast as it can, pushing it out as fast as it can, but there's more blood pouring into the top of the heart than is actually coming out of the other side of that heart. You know, that fluid backs up towards my feet on the right side and it backs up in my veins. A lower amount of blood flow is then moved from the right ventricle into the pulmonary arteries which travel to the lungs. This patient then presents with pedal edema, swelling in the ankles, and overall fluid retention. Oftentimes this patient is taking something like Lasix or HCTZ, hydrochlorothiazide, quote unquote water pills, to reduce the amount of fluid that they have overall inside of their body, helping them to reduce that amount of fluid by urinating it out. This patient will carry a diagnosis of congestive heart failure, but you know does not necessarily retain the fluid in their lungs. Swapping our thought process to the left side of the heart though, if the left side is failing to eject blood into the vasculature towards the body, remember the left side ejects it into the aorta, 
This leads to a fluid backup, or that same traffic jam, but where does that blood come from on the left side of the heart? It comes from the pulmonary veins as they come from the lungs back towards the left side of the heart, bringing that oxygenated blood back to the left side of the heart. That's where the traffic jam is now occurring. The right side is still pumping fluid into the lungs, but the left side isn't drawing it out fast enough and pushing it out to the body fast enough. This leads to that fluid backup in the lungs, in that pulmonary network. This increases the pressure inside of the lungs, meaning that the fluid can now shift through the membranes and the capillary beds from the vasculature in the lungs into the dead space inside of that alveoli. This patient presents with uh, pulmonary edema. This fluid buildup in their lungs can be continuous, it can be gradual, and it can even eventually progress to being overwhelming. It can all just depend on how much fluid is being collected in the lungs. Uh, this fluid shifts, especially as the patient changes position throughout the day. You may have heard the term orthopnea before. This describes a patient who does not want to lay flat because they are suddenly having the feeling that they cannot breathe. Orthopnea, or difficulty breathing while changing position or laying flat, can be a huge sign of pulmonary edema. Um, there are other reasons why a patient will have pulmonary edema as well as left-sided heart failure. However, these mechanisms are inconsequential when we are considering the symptoms that we are really trying to treat as a respiratory emergency. So consider we are now working with a patient who has shortness of breath. Despite their pathology, most of these patients do not wish to lay flat, and most of these patients have shortness of breath and will express air hunger. When we're considering what is causing this patient's shortness of breath, remember that lung sounds are king. Lung sounds mean everything. By auscultating the patient's lungs in the upper levels, the mid-levels, and again in the lower levels, we are listening especially, or specifically for rawls. This subtle sound of bubbling, crackling, um, that is the fluid inside of those air pockets, inside um, of the lungs. That's the telltale sign that the patient has some form of pulmonary edema. This could be because of CHF. This could be because of a change in altitude. This could even be because we have left an IV run too much and the patient is now fluid overloaded. For whatever the reason, we're considering this as a mechanism of action versus hearing like wheezes or ronchi, our treatments change drastically. Instead of using bronchodilators and medications like Atrovent that have severe cardiac uh, interactions and could potentially cause a, a cardiac side effect, this patient's already suffering from a cardiac problem. We need to instead use medications and treatments that are specifically designed to affect the patient's ability to reduce pressure inside of the lungs. Patient who has CHF, they have a pump problem and has a fluid pressure problem, not a constriction problem of the actual air passageways per se. Our first line medication in this case that we're going to give is nitroglycerin. Nitro works by reducing overall pressure and making the container bigger. This draws fluid back into the vasculature out of the lungs and opens up more surface area for the patient to perform gas exchange. When added to a positive pressure ventilation system, such as CPAP, which makes it harder for the fluids to cross the 
uh, from the blood into that open space of the alveoli. This significantly reduces a patient's symptoms by easing their shortness of breath and allowing them to take deeper breaths each time as that fluid is evacuated out of the lungs. It's important to note that patients who have CHF or pulmonary edema can also have underlying diagnoses of COPD. It's also important to note that patients who are having exacerbations of shortness of breath rarely have both pathologies flaring up at the same time. Therefore, it's incorrect to assume that a patient who simply has a history of CHF and COPD should be treated with both bronchodilators and medications like nitroglycerin. Really, I'm not saying it never needs to happen. I'm sure at some level we have anecdotal stories and what ifs and those sorts of things. This happens in the vast minority. We should really strive to be better clinicians than that and to take the time to dig deeper into a patient's lung sounds, determine the difference in what we are actually hearing. It's also possible that as a patient's lung sounds improve, you might develop symptoms or lung sounds over the course of time. Use your best judgment and error on the side of caution with your patients. For our discussion today about uh, from our Zoom classes, our frequently asked questions, from our presentation that discussed killer bleeds and hidden traumas, we focused on chest wall trauma, abdominal trauma, and pelvic trauma. We discussed pneumothorax and pericardial tamponade um, with Beck's triad, which is tachycardia, JVD, and muffled heart tones being a good indicator that you have uh, some sort of effusion to the uh, pericardial sac as well as like solid organ ruptures like the liver and the spleen, why they bleed so much, uh, looking at that mechanism of injury and being very suspicious of all, when we're thinking about that uh, solid organ injury involving injuries to like the chest and the abdomen. We think about that mechanism of injury of up and over type injuries of somebody going over the handlebars of their bike or their motorcycle as well as pelvic injuries that cause major bleeding with all of the blood vessels that exist inside of that cage. Overall, our theme was about bleeds that you can't see and how important your physical exam is and how important it is to have that high level of suspicion um, in order to spot those bleeds and to get them to the hospital quickly. During one of our classes, a question came up about permissive hypotension and uh, for this section, we'd like to focus on that one piece for our FAQ here this month, review just what permissive hypotension is and what relationship it has with exsanguinating traumas. So permissive hypotension, really in essence, that means that we have a patient who has suffered blood loss, has vital signs to reflect it, and uh, we our need to be cautious in our fluid resuscitation because we can't solve this with saline. More and more studies suggest that sparing use of saline and trauma and instead using things like lactated ringers and getting them to blood product, you know, and avoiding saline uh, really um, with mass saline resuscitation uh, due to reasons like saline's slightly acidotic pH, the fact that saline doesn't carry oxygen and carbon dioxide, you know, it's not a good uh, you know, oxygen transport carrier, it doesn't really do it at all, and that saline is almost always served cold when we give it, 
and by far uh, the, f the farther cooler a patient's body temperature becomes, the more the it impacts the clotting factor. So these factors really are toxic to traumatized patients and traumatized body tissue that are already struggling with acidosis and hypoxia and lack of blood flow. And overall, these three things, they really negatively affect our clotting cascade. They affect our body's ability to sustain compensation during all of this. Um, so, but saline really isn't evil or bad. It's really what we have, you know, and in some cases it's the answer for like our dehydrated patients and things like that. But in all reality, this patient needs blood products and a surgeon to stop the bleeding. At some level, we must preserve what fluid is left that's pumping around the patient's body. And we have to ensure that it has enough pressure to carry what's left to keep those bodily organs and systems alive and functioning. Saline can help with that on a temporary basis, but the old days of make them bleed pink, that's, that's over. This is really where permissive hypotension comes into play. First off, we need vitals, real vitals. We need to know if those vitals are normal enough for now or if a patient has you know, maybe stopped perfusing their organs. It should also be said that this depends on the fact that we have a good way or a good idea of how quickly they're losing blood and that we have done what we can uh, to stop that blood loss and promote those blood clots and to keep us from losing that fight even further to the best of our knowledge. Permissive hypotension, all right, when we look at this, we look at a BP and we look at that for a uh, mean arterial pressure of 65 or less, right? That's going to tell us that we don't have enough pressure to adequately sustain blood flow uh, to our organs and to keep things perfused. So we calculate a mean arterial pressure by taking two times the diastolic pressure and we add that to the systolic pressure and then divide that whole total by three. So for example, a patient with a BP of 120 over 80, we add both of the 80s together, which is 160. We add that to the 120, so that gives us now a total of 280. And then we divide that whole thing by three, which is just a touch less than 100, 93.3 to be exact. A good way to think about this is to double the diastolic, add it to the systolic, and then compare it to the range of 225 to 300. Now, I'm no whiz kid, especially without my calculator, and sometimes it's hard to do that, you know, long division in my head with, you know, solid, reliable accuracy. When we think about that range of 225 to 300, 225 divided by 3 is 75. That's really good. 300 divided by 3, that's 100. That's also really good. But as soon as I start getting those number ranges that are less than 225, when I double my diastolic and add it to my systolic, that's when I know I'm approaching that MAP score of 65. That's when I know I'm starting to get to that point where that patient is not perfusing their organs well enough, right? And this is maybe a really good idea, at least for easy 2 a.m. math, something to think about it. So let's look at how we apply this. First off, we need access to even consider these options. We need two IVs, and that should really be your baseline. You know, the thought of two is one, one is none, that phrase kind of goes around the military quite a bit, or when you're thinking about emergency supplies, you can almost guarantee that Murphy's Law is going to kick into play. If I only have one, it's probably going to, you know, that IV is probably going to break at some point. So two is one, one is none. That's a real good way, as the saying goes. 
The patient should be prepared for blood product, prepared for imaging and those IV boluses needed to find, um, you know, uh, ruptured organs. Uh, they should be prepare prepared for infusions. We need access really inside of their body to do that. Now we're going to watch their blood pressures. A patient may be tachycardic due to pain or fear or anxiety. They also may be tachycardic because of a compensatory mechanism secondary to hypovolemia. Your BPs really become the most important thing here as heart rate alone isn't something that we're going to be able to reliably look at as an indicator for fluid resuscitation. So your blood pressures, and we're talking manual blood pressures, not palpated blood pressures, right? We have to have that diastolic number in order to be able to calculate a mean arterial pressure, okay? So that'll show us if we end up needing to consider adding fluid to this patient. Let's look at a BP of 140 over 100. Now to me, right off the bat, that makes me feel pretty good. That number seems you know, nice and solid. All right, so now let's run it through our MAP score algorithm here. So 100 times 2 is 200, plus 140 is 340. Right off the bat, it's over 300. I know my MAP is going to be over 100. When we go ahead and do the full uh, math on that, the MAP score is 113 on that patient to be exact. You know, and I was already feeling good about that because I knew the number was over 300. Now consider that patient has gone through a traumatic injury. That patient doesn't need 20 cc's per kilo or 30 cc's per kilo of saline, right? That patient already has a good blood pressure. That patient is already set. I need to be suspicious that that patient is injured. That patient just hasn't lost enough blood now enough to make me consider needing to bolster them with saline. They're still going to get two IVs. They're still going to get prepped for infusions. They're still going to get prepped for you know, imaging scans. I'm still going to do that trauma activation, those sorts of things. However, I'm going to be... Uh, withholding the saline on that because I know that saline interrupts the clotting cascade. It's slightly acidotic. It's going to make the patient cold and that's going to worsen my patient's bleeding, maybe even worsening the amount of blood loss that they have going on in their body. Um, so going back to that patient, I know I'm pretty good. Now let's look at a patient with a BP of 90 over 60, right? So we're looking at that patient of 90 over 60. So if I take my 60, multiply it by two, that's 120. I add it to 90. Right now I'm at 210. At the very first get-go, I look at that patient with a blood pressure at 90 over 60, immediately the hairs in the back of my neck stand up. That already makes me feel a little less confident about what that patient looks like. But when I divide all this out, 210 divided by three is a MAP score of 70. I'm above 65 right now. I know that I'm gonna be you know, approaching that 65 level and I definitely need to be really cautious about what I'm seeing here. That's a patient I'm gonna be a little bit more confident about maybe giving a little bit of saline to, or at least being prepared to start giving that patient saline right off the bat. Uh, but the patient is still perfusing their organs. That patient is still uh, perfusing that, that sort of stuff. Now it's going to be that diastolic pressure that's probably going to start failing here first. And that's why we're going to need serial blood pressures, trending them out and getting ready to bolster those blood pressures back up, getting more saline on in there and driving that MAP score up above 65. And then I'll shut my fluids down for a little while longer, knowing it's a balancing act between driving this stuff round and around and around in their system, but not giving them too much that we wash out the clots and cause them to go acidotic and really trying to keep them as normal thermic as I can. 
You know, this is the basis of permissive hypotension. Understanding that a patient's vitals can be permissibly or with permission lower than what we're initially comfortable with. And we're using that MAP score as our benchmark. We're using that two times the diastolic plus the systolic divided by three to look at what that looks like and to see where we're at in that relationship of 65 being the number that we know below 65, we're gonna do fluid resuscitation. Above 65, we're still perfusing organs. We need to stop any further blood loss as much as we can. We need to apply tourniquets, apply direct pressure, try our pressure points. We need to try to get um, you know, maybe pelvic slings there in place to try to uh, promote any sort of like uh, encouragement of blood, blood clots inside of their body so we can pre uh, preserve that blood uh, and that blood pressure here for uh, as long as we can. Thanks for listening to the Falk Salem Podcast. We welcome any feedback you may have, or if you have suggestions for future content, please send an email to nicholas, that's N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S, dot van eps v-a-n-e-p-p-s at falc.com thank you for all your hard work and have a safe shift